as Riley mentioned, you guys were wonderfully generous in the Go Forward Fund this year. We, we raised $175,000, which is a huge amount of money. Some of that was set aside by you. Some of it you, you particularly designated to things that we wanted to give to. Um, about 85% of it was undesignated, which meant we could actually choose as pastors. And so we prayed about it as a team, and we decided to give $100,000 to Parramatta. So you guys will be... If you can't make it work for that, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so that's just going to bless them so much. And, and Riley and I were able to work through his budget for the next few years, and I think it's just going to really help uh, make Parramatta a reality and not be going penny-pinching and trying to make it work, but instead really get there and um, do what God's called them to do. We're going to be giving $25,000 to Mercy Ministries and CAP, which is going to enable Christina not, not only to keep CAP going, but I think we want to grow in our Mercy Ministries model and see what else there is for us in and around the locale area that we um, serve in and live in. We're going to give $15,000 to ICM so we can help the poor um, in the Philippines, and then we're going to give $35,000 to Sovereign Grace Global Missions. Um, we're going to be actually giving that, some of it we're going to be giving as a bulk to the guys in the States to look after the budget, which actually I look after, so in some ways um, we're still going to be involved in it. Um, but in other ways, we're actually going to keep some of it separate. We're going to give 3,000 US dollars um, to a church in Croatia and our friend Mario. Um, that, it is hardcore planting a church in Croatia. You may as well be planting in Turkey uh, because although they're not Muslim, they are heavily Catholic and that makes a massive difference in the way it plays out there. So we're going to do that. We're going to help them continue to plant the church there. And then we're going to give around $10,000 to Liberia, which basically means we're actually going to be planting a church in Liberia. Um, it costs, yeah, so Riley, why, why Riley costs 100 when <laughs> we could do 10 churches in Liberia? So I'm going to be letting Diana know this week that we put it, so I asked him when we were there, I'm like, how much would it cost to build a structure that houses a school and a church, and do you have people ready to do it if we could find money? And he said, oh, yeah, we definitely have a pastor ready who I met, um, but it's a lot of money to actually plant a church and a school. I'm like, try me, how much is it? And he's like, it's around 10,000 Aussie dollars. I think we can do that for you. <laughs> and so we're going to be planting a school and a church in Liberia, which is just praise God. Thank you for the way you give. I trust that blesses you to know things that you are involved here in the location, here in Par Parramatta and also across the world. Praise God. How kind he is to let us play a part, don't you think? How kind. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. Today is a special day in our calendar, as has already been mentioned, because we are deigning our third pastor, Mr. Patrick Jeremy Chavez. Found out his middle name just this week, saw it on the certificate. You know, what a precious day this is. We planted this church around eight and a half years ago. When we started, I was the only ordained pastor. I was actually the only ordained pastor in the Southern Hemisphere and for Sovereign Grace churches. And I had ringing in my ears... Paul's notes to Timothy of the importance of finding pastors and locating pastors and ordaining pastors. But I also had Paul's counsel ringing on my ear of do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And it's so important that we not be hasty. Understanding what pastors are is biblically defined. You understand then why you can't be hasty in bringing men into ordained pastoral ministry. And so two years ago, we finally ordained Brendan is the first ordained guy, actually, that was actually physically ordained in the Southern Hemisphere. 
I remember saying in that message that forever he will be number one and whoever comes after that will be number two and three and four. <laughs> Today we celebrate number two, you know what I'm saying? And it is a precious day, but before we ordain Patrick, I want to take some time to look at what it is to discern pastoral ministry. Because if we don't understand what pastors are doing, we're never going to really enjoy this moment for what it is as biblically defined. And so I'm going to look at one verse, Hebrews 13, verse 17. It's a verse that I think not many pastors like to preach on because it can appear self-serving. But it is in God's word. And although pastors can be uncomfortable preaching it, God is clearly not uncomfortable saying it. And this is the word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Lord, what a precious day this is in our short history as a church. How kind, because today, although we celebrate Patrick, primarily we celebrate your faithfulness. How kind you are. Lord, we have been recipients of your undeserved grace again and again and again. And I trust today as we unpack this passage that we would be freshly amazed at your care for us and your kindness towards us. Would this all be, Lord, for the audience of one? Would this be precious in your sight? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, for me, one of the greatest verses in the letter to the Hebrews, in fact, two verses, actually comes just a chapter earlier. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what the writer says. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I I love the word picture that those verses give us because the word picture that it creates in our mind is one of the great race, isn't it? And it's a great race that we are all in. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are in the greatest race of your life. You didn't earn the race. You were saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, but now you've been enlisted in the greatest race of your life. You've been called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been called to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. You've been called to run in such a way that the cloud of witnesses, all the heavenly saints from the past and present, looking on in the heavenly realms, are able to look on and applaud. Say, keep going, sovereign grace! Keep running. And the one to whom we're running is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the perfecter of our faith. What a day it will be when we see his face. And on this race, this great race that we've all been enlisted to, in all realities, there are many realities and challenges that seek to distract us away from running. 
the realities and strategies that are talked about actually in the letter to the Hebrews. There's the reality then and the challenge of indwelling sin. The reality that the old self is still there. It seeks to want to rob us and destroy us and pull us away from running hard in this race as it seeks to distract us into other things instead. The evil one himself, Satan, he wants to scheme against us. He wants to do all he can to pull you off the race. He wants to do all you can to pull you away from what you're meant to be giving your life to. And then there's the world. The world which God himself says, do not love, and yet we can be so enticed by, seduced by, to running instead to the world, instead of on the great race we're on. The stakes could not be higher. As the heavenly realms look on, the stakes could not be higher in this race. And yet distraction and the realities of challenges to distract us are present. So what does God do? Well, primarily, he gives us himself and his word. He says, listen, I know you're going to get distracted on this race. I'm going to run with you. And I'm going to give you this word. This word is going to be your guide. It's going to help you keep running this race, knowing how to run and where to run and how fast to run and what running even looks like. And then secondarily, I'm going to give you each other because no one's very good at running by themselves. And to help you each and every step of the way, I'm going to give you pastors. I'm going to give you leaders. I'm going to give you men that are going to be set aside by me, that are going to be given to the work of ministry, and that are going to be given to helping you on the greatest race of your life. And that's why he tells us then in chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders. It's a therefore moment. Listen, in light of all the distractions, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Well, before we ordain then, Patrick, there's, there's a couple of things I want to do. There's a couple of questions I want to ask of this text so we can enjoy this together. Number one, what is it that pastors are called to do? We understand in a big picture they're helping us on this great race, but how do they do that? What is it that they're actually going to give an account for before the Lord? Number two, how then should we respond to our pastors? And then number three, we are going to ordain Patrick. So number one, what is it that pastors are called to do? We will never truly appreciate our pastors or understand what they are doing unless we first go to God's word. See, we're not meant to be going to, a biblical, to an unbiblical model of business or the way schools are structured or whatever else when it comes to pastoral ministry. We're meant to be opening our Bibles and working out what does God say about what pastors are going to do because they're not going to give an account for what we think they're going to do. We're going to give an account for what it actually says. Jeff Perswell, then the Dean of the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, he says it this way. He says, It is increasingly popular for pastoral ministry to be pragmatically defined or culturally conditioned rather than scripturally determined. Yet when this occurs, the role of the pastor is distorted, the effectiveness of the pastor is diminished, and the health of the church is weakened. That's why we must pay attention to God's word when it comes to understanding what is my pastor called to do towards me? What are our pastors called to do towards us? Well, they're called to five things. Number one, when it comes to understanding what a pastor is called to do, number one, they are called to lead the church. 
According to Scripture, pastors are called by God and accountable to God to lead the flock of God that has been entrusted to them. And the Bible describes this in various ways. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 3 verses 4 to 5, An elder must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then 1 to Peter 5 verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. You get the themes? Ruling, managing, exercising oversight. In Romans 12 verse 8, Paul says, Let the one who lead, lead with zeal. Pastors are men that are set aside by God to run in a plurality and together in a plurality they are called to lead for the health of the church, for the glory of God and as men who will give an account to God, they are called to lead. Folks, I thank God as I thought about this message this week. I thank God for the way you encourage and embrace leadership in this local church. You are profoundly counter-cultural. Australia does not embrace leadership. Australia, I mean, you are many things as Australians. My wife is Australian. I've been talking to her about it. She became Australian just this week. (laughs) She understands in a new way. Australians do not naturally, as a overculture, embrace leadership. That's what the tall poppy syndrome is all about, right? You're growing too tall. Cut him down. Whoa, who do you think you are? Let's all be mates. That can be fun. Problematic for biblical leadership. But I thank God for the way you embrace and encourage leadership in this local church. You do a wonderful job of this. I think you are honoring the Lord. I think you are pleasing the Lord in the way you are living your lives. I seek you honor and encourage leadership. And for me, you make my job a pure joy as well. It's what it says in the second half of 17. She's just emotional. It's a sad day or tears of joy. It says in that second part of the verse, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That's the job of the church. Let them do this with joy. Well, how? By, By being willing to embrace their leadership. I want you to know on behalf of myself and Brendan, you make our role a pure joy because you embrace and encourage leadership and lead we must. Because one day, when you stand before the Lord and give an account for your life, you will then be done. But I will stand before the Lord for my life and then how I've pastored you. It's different. Thank you for embracing that. Thank you for encouraging leadership in this church and lead we must. Number two, pastors are called to nourish the church. John chapter 21 verse 17 Jesus calls Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he keeps asking him over and over again. And Peter keeps saying, I do, I do love you. And he says, so Peter, feed my sheep. He's the first ordained pastor that there ever was in effect. God is going to build the church on Peter's shoulder. He is the first ordained minister. And what is his primary responsibility? To feed the sheep, to nourish the people of God, to open God's word and bring it to bear on their lives. And every pastor that follows thereafter is called to do exactly the same. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Isn't that wonderful? If we give ourselves to this word, if we pay attention to this word, we will be equipped and complete for every good work. Why? Because it's God-breathed, it's useful, and His promise is if we give ourselves to it, then we'll be complete for every good work. That's cool. So no wonder then Paul says to Timothy, straight after saying that, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Timothy, God's word is powerful. Timothy, it's all breathed out by God. So Timothy, preach the word, starting with the gospel, which he's already talked to him about in the opening, opening chapters of the letter of 2 Timothy. Starting with the gospel, Timothy. Make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing. Make sure you keep the gospel central in all your ministry. And as you keep it central, teach them the whole of God's word. Teach them how to observe it, how to apply it, how to enjoy it, how to build it into their lives. Timothy, I charge you to do this. It's exactly what every pastor has been called to do after Timothy. To preach the whole counsel of God. For some pastors, that means a lot of public ministry like this. For other pastors, it means a lot of private ministry. But it is still preaching and teaching God's word. Whether you be in a group of 200 or whether you be one-on-one, -on -one, pastors are called to open God's word. Let me help you bring this to bear on your life. Because what I think about things doesn't matter. But what God thinks about things is everything we stand on. So we preach the word and nourish the people of God through the word. Number three, they are called to equip the church. See, according to scripture, the pastor isn't called to be an overarching doer. It's important that we realize that. I mean, I, I remember growing up in the UK, one of my favorite programs was The Vicar of Dibley. Did it ever get here? Yeah, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Well, it was, it was a good program. And in some ways, it was funny in UK culture because she does really represent, in the way she is a vicar, what vicars tend to think in the UK. I.e., I take you on and you do everything. So you visit the sick, you pray for the sick, you preach on a Sunday, you lead the singing, you lead all the groups, you go around to care for everybody. I'm not doing it, that's why we employ you. Negative. <laughs> Pastoral ministry is about equipping the saints for works of ministry. Look, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints... For the work of ministry. In a healthy local church, leaders equip, people ministers. Why I don't like being called a minister? Because we're all ministers if we're going to play that game. I'm an equipper, 
people minister. We all play our part in the local church, but pastors are uniquely called in their leadership to help equip the saints. Help equip them so that they can use their gifts for the glory of God. So they can play their part in the body ever increasingly for the glory of God. According to Scripture, a pastor is to be called an equipper. And the church then is called to minister. And pastors are going to give an account for how they have equipped. Number four, they are called to protect the church. See, as under-shepherds of God's people, which is what pastors are, we all have a chief shepherd. That is not me. (laughs) It's Jesus. He's the ultimate one that owns this church, right? He's the true leader of Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, not me. I'm an under-shepherd. And all pastors are under-shepherds. But one of the roles he's given to us as under-shepherds is to protect the sheep. You see, in all of life, there are a whole range of dangers and snares that come our way, and pastors are called to protect us from those dangers and snares. And they do come to us in a variety of different ways. See, first and foremost, then, there's the dangers and snares that come from the evil one. It's a reality. So in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, we read the following from Paul. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Paul is very clear. Listen, there is an evil one who is scheming against you all the time. Church, what does that look like most of the time? Does it look like the rain's coming at the wrong time of year or stuff like that? No. The schemes of the devil look like, on the whole, legalism, condemnation, subjectivism. They're schemes. What can I do to knock them off track, to get them out of this race? What can I do to distract them? What can I do to weigh them down? I know, I'll take the truth and twist it slightly because then they won't notice. So I'll turn them into legalists. I'll condemn them. I'll turn them into subjectivists. We have so many schemes that come our way and so often we are just not perceptive to them. The darts of the enemy we just simply do not see. One of the role of a pastor is to bring those things to light, like a cockroach and a torch. It is our job to shine a light on them and go, there it is, look, it's a scheme, it's not true, it's lies. Stand on the word, stand on God's truth, delight in the gospel. Build your lives on these things. People are very emotional today. So there's the dangers and snares that come from the evil one. Secondarily, there's the dangers and snares that come from the world. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're called pilgrims. We're called strangers. We're called aliens. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear, listen, you are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. And yet the challenge is the world is so darn enticing, isn't it? 
And even when it doesn't entice us, it fools us into playing the same game that it plays. So instead of feeling like I would really desire to own a home, which I do, we start to feel like I need one. If I don't have one, I'm not being a good husband. How am I going to look after my wife? How are we going to consider the future? It goes from a desire to a need. That's what everybody in Sydney says. I'm not saying that we shouldn't own homes. But what I am saying is let's not be duped into playing the games of the world, taking on the values of the world and making desires into needs. God says, I will look after you. Fact. He doesn't say, you need all these things. Otherwise I won't be able to cope. My friends, we're called to flee from the world in terms of its values, in terms of what it stands for. And pastors are called by God to help us see the dangers and snares that come from the world. They're not to tell you then what to do and what not to do unless it's clearly biblically defined. But they are called to ask questions of consider what may be going on in your heart. And it's important because the third danger and snare that we all face are the dangers and snares that come from within. We can't avoid it. The greatest enemy that you face is not in the world. It's in you. See, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he tells us about the reality of indwelling sin. Let's read it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's telling us, listen, there's always going to be a battle going on in your heart. It's the reality of indwelling sin in your heart is what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. Why is it that I keep on doing the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I know I should? Oh, wretched man that I am. It's the presence of indwelling sin. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to run well on this race, be aware of that indwelling sin and put it off. It will cling to you closely. It will slow you down. It will waste your race. Put it off. But the story gets worse. Because in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13, he tells us about the deceitfulness of sin. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So not only is sin present, it will deceive us. It will deceive us into thinking it's not even there. You know, I always find cultures interesting in this regard. And to critique my own culture, being British, British people complain and moan all the time. But if you ever ask a British person, are you a complainer? They will say no. And they will mean it. Because it is a culturally imbibed sin that nobody even notices anymore. You try explaining a fish that's swimming around in water, it can't even tell. Sometimes we embrace sins as a culture and sometimes we embrace sins as individuals that we don't even think of as sins. We just think, no, that's part of my life. That's because it deceives you. It deceives you. It's something Christ died for and yet you just think it's part of your personality. It's not. That's why the writer to the book of Hebrews is helping us see the reality of indwelling sin and then the deceitfulness of sin and the danger in it all comes in Hebrews 2 verse 1. That says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. 
So sin is indwelling, it's a reality in our life. It will deceive us into thinking it's not even there. And the greatest danger of all is that if I'm on this race, running for God's glory, I could drift away. Happens all the time. And as pastors, we are usually ringing the bell to try and help someone see, and they ignore us. But ring the bell, pastors must. Given the reality of indwelling sin, given the deceitfulness of sin, given the potential of drift, it is no surprise to me at all that come Hebrews chapter 13, God says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. They're there to protect you, to help you, to bring things to life, to help you see for the glory of God what's really going on. If a pastor is doing his job, he will be leading people, he will be nourishing people, he will be equipping people, he will be protecting people, and finally, he will be serving people. See, make no mistake, the Bible, in the way it talks about pastoral ministry, doesn't just talk about the role, it always talks about tone as well. How they're to go about the task that God has called them to do. So 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3, we read, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He's making it clear, listen, your pastors will have a place of authority in your life and they should have. But pastors do not domineer over these people. Instead, serve them. Lay your life down for them. And no one modeled that better than Jesus Christ himself. He says in Mark chapter 10, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, that's why I believe when you look at the character qualifications for a pastor, in fact, if you just look at the qualifications for a pastor, there's about 17, 18 qualifications. One of them has to do with competency, namely they have to be able to teach. The other ones all have to do with character. Why? Well, because pastoral ministry is a character profession, and it's about serving people. Do you have to be competent? Oh, yeah. But character goes before competency. And you have to be a servant. You have to be willing to serve people. You have to be willing to protect them and lead them and teach them and nourish them while getting on your hands and knees to wash their feet. That's what Jesus did. And pastors are called to be like Jesus. And I'd have to say to you, I think the man that we are, ordaining this morning is a servant. I think he serves wonderfully well. I think you do a wonderful job of laying your life down for people. And that's why I want to follow you. That's why I want you to pastor me and be involved in my life. I think Patrick is a wonderful servant. If anything, I would say sometimes he serves too much. But better to lean that way than that way. (laughs) Pastoral ministry is not about lording it over people. 
In fact, it's not even about something to aspire to. As if, wow, if I could just be a pastor, I'd be a somebody. Well, you'll be a slave of all, if that's what you're talking about. (laughs) That's what pastoring is. You serve people, you love people, you lead them, you nourish them, you equip them, protect them. Oh, and guess what? In all the way you're going to do that, you are going to give an account. What a sobering reality that is. If you've ever been concerned about whether I can really follow a pastor, be aware of this. One day, they will stand before God and give an account for their life. If they're the right people, they take that very seriously every day of their lives. Sometimes people talk to me and they're like, oh, I don't want to ask a pastor about that because they're going to be biased. Really? They're going to stand before God and give an account, but they're going to be biased towards you? I don't think so. (laughs) With all due respect, I don't think so at all. When they're aware that they're going to stand and give an account before the Lord, they are going to look you in the eye and be sobered by the reality what I say now I will give an account for. So help me listen. Help me serve this person well. That's what you do. Pastors will one day give an account. Patrick, one day you will give an account. Do you still want to do it? (laughs) Number two, how then should we respond to our pastors? The undeniable emphasis in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the undeniable uh, emphasis in that verse is the response of the church to their pastors. And so yes, pastors are to give an account, but the overall emphasis is in obeying your leaders and submitting to them. And so in Hebrews chapter 1 through 12, he's been addressing the church all the time. This is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. This is the dangers of indwelling sin. This is the great race you're on. And I give you pastors. And in chapter 13, in verse 7, in 17 and 24, it all relates to the church's response to their pastors. Why? Why is that emphasis there? Well, it's there because I believe the effectiveness of pastoral leadership is always dependent upon a proper response to pastoral leadership. You can have a great pastor, but if we don't position our hearts well towards that pastor, he will not consider his job a pure joy, and you will never enjoy the benefits of his pastoral ministry. The emphasis of these verses is not primarily on the pastor, it's on our response to the pastor to make this work. And you see this in several places in the Bible, that the effectiveness of pastoral leadership is always dependent upon our proper response to pastoral leadership. So how do we respond? Well, four quick things for you. Number one, we respond with a faith-filled disposition to follow. A faith-filled disposition to follow. This is what it says again, Hebrews 13, 17. It's all in the text. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You know, it's not talking there about blind obedience or passive compliance, okay? It's not what he's talking there. It's not talking about a dad to a three-year-old, all right? That is not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is as it comes to your pastors, have a faith-filled disposition to follow them. That's what being obedient and submitting to them means in this regard. It's having a disposition to follow them. It's the same way wives are to submit to their husbands. What does that mean? It means having a disposition to follow the headship that God's given them. In the same way, churches are to have a faithful disposition to follow the leaders that God has entrusted to them. It's the way God's designed it. Jeff Perswell again, Dean of the Pastors College, says, Submission here 
does not mean passivity or blind obedience. Rather, submission is an expression of faith towards God, that he has appointed leaders for us and he will use them for our good. It recognizes the critical role that leadership plays in bringing about God's purposes in the church and in the lives of believers. And so fundamentally, submission is an attitude, a disposition to affirm and support the leadership of the church and to increase its effectiveness through joyful and faith-filled participation. Once again, I thank you that this is your example. It is. This is the way you function. I thank you for that. And the truth is, having so many men that I know that are in pastoral ministry outside of Sovereign Grace Churches, this is not the way everybody operates. Now and again, I speak to pastors who are overwhelmed with their lives, overwhelmed with their role, and saddened that no one listens. And they ask me if I've ever felt anything like that, and I have to sadly say to them, no, I can't relate to you on that. I've never actually been in a church where people didn't have a disposition to follow, and I'll be praying for you, and I love you, and I would encourage you to teach some of these texts. Let them argue with God, not you. But this text clearly says if we are going to enjoy pastoral ministry, if we're going to enjoy what they're called to do, we have to have a disposition to follow them. Otherwise it won't work. Number two, we respond with a faith-filled openness. Pay attention again to the text. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul. And as I was reading that this week, I paused and I just began to thank God for the many pastors I've had in my life. Because I do not know where I would be without the many pastors that I've had in my life keeping watch over my soul. I thank God for the pastors I've had that have created structures in my life which is what primarily keeping watch over your soul looks like. I thank God for the fact that I've been in churches where pastors would make sure that we're singing gospel-centered songs, that each and every week I'm being reminded of the glories of the gospel so I can stave off legalism and condemnation and licentiousness and subjectivism. I thank God that each and every week a pastor has given hours and hours to understanding God's word and then teaching me it. I only received 40 minutes, but he's probably said 20 plus hours in that. I thank God for the teaching that I've regularly received in the structures of the Sunday morning. I thank God for the pastors I've had that have created small groups for me. Small groups where I get to do life with people. They've trained the leaders and then I've been able to do life with people, to weep with people, to rejoice with people, to apply God's word with people, to run alongside people, to confess my sin to people. And I thank God for the way pastors have created structures for discipleship to take place in my life on many, many occasions. Sometimes as a group, sometimes one-on-one, but I've enjoyed the benefits of the church in big part because pastors have led it that way. And as I started to think about my past, Pete Greasley and Pete Bowley, pastors that I got to know when I was a 19-year-old hooligan wrecking my life that took time for me. I built structures in the church and in small groups and discipleship where I started to grow. That was because they built it that way. 
I thank God for pastors in my life when it comes to structures, and I thank God for the pastors I've had in my life when it comes to personal care as well. I do not know where I would be today without the personal care that specific times in my life that I received from pastors. Pete Bowley and Pete Creasley, Eric Tibetsky in the States, Mark Prater, Bob Coughlin, Brendan Willis, Riley Spring, Patrick Chavez. I don't know where I'd be without them. Times when I've been confused. Times when I've just not known what to do. Times when I want to throw in the towel. Times when I'm just overwhelmed with the decision we've got to make and I just don't know what to do. Times where they've been there for me and taken time to encourage me and talk to me and help me untangle so often myself. Here's one of the things I've found to be true in my life, though, over the last 19 years of pastoral ministry. I've never yet met a pastor with the gift of mind reading. They don't have it. And the only way I've been able to benefit from pastoral ministry is by opening up my life to them. Understanding that, hey, you're giving an account to God for me, right? And you're a gift from God to me to watch over my soul. Well, I'm going through some things in my soul. Would you help me? And they have. But if I'd never opened up my life to them, they never probably would. And you should know that there are some pastors, although no pastor, I think, have the gift of being able to read minds. Many pastors are indeed intuitive, but there's different degrees of that gifting as well. And I can assure you, if you don't come to me and tell me I need your help, I probably will never come to you, because I may not notice. Pastors are not mind readers. You have to be able to go to them and say, listen, could you help me? I don't know what to do in this decision. I don't know what to do in this area of my life. My marriage is in a state. My children are going off the rails. I just don't know what to do. Can you help me? And the answer will always be from this pastoral team, yes, we'd be honored to help you. But that will never happen if you don't, with faith-filled glee in the Lord, open your life to them. The way we respond to the Lord then is uh, to respond to pastors with faithful disposition to follow. Number two, we respond with a faithful openness. Number three, we respond with a God-honoring appreciation. This is particularly difficult to preach, particularly when you are one, but it is true. And Paul does not seem to be uncomfortable writing it, so I don't want to be uncomfortable saying it, but here's what he says. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he says, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You know, I have been a pastor for 19 years, and this verse makes sense to me now. See, being a pastor is a wonderful joy. It is. It is outside of being a husband to Emma and a father to my five children. Being a pastor is a wonderful joy and privilege. But it is also hard. See, when you're building a church, when it's a church that isn't just a service, that's just numbers, it's people that you give your heart to. People that you're really bothered about. 
people that you want to see succeed. People you counted a privilege to run alongside and people you always feel responsible for in the race. Why? Because you are. And so it's like being a dad, just on a much bigger scale. You invest emotionally, you invest physically, you invest spiritually, and there are many, many joys with that. But there are also heartbreaks with that and challenges with that. And moments where you're just sad as you run with people. I can understand then why Paul tells us here, listen, respect those who oversee you. Esteem them very highly. You know, in Britain, one of the criticisms I think of my culture is you would rarely encourage a pastor. Why? Because they might get proud. (laughs) They've probably got enough going on in their life. (laughs) They're not going to get proud. And secondarily, the Bible never says outdo one another with honoring, except for pastors in case they get proud. (laughs) It says outdo one another with honoring. Again, I thank God for the encouragement I receive from you. I do. But I'm eager to ensure that happens throughout the whole team. Never assume that your pastor is aware of the difference he's making in your life. He's probably not. Never assume when a pastor gets down from the pulpit that he's aware that was a great message. He's probably not. And on Monday, which is usually one of the saddest days of the week for a preacher, you're often thinking, I never want to preach again. So what does God do? Well, he builds a church around pastors that can say, thank you. That's how it affected me. Thank you for your care for me. Thank you for making time for me. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for praying for me. I think that's what Paul's doing here. As pastors give their lives away for you, respond to them with appreciation. You do do this. You do it wonderfully. Keep doing it. And long after I'm dead and gone, never ever stop showing appreciation to your pastors. And I look forward, genuinely, if I live long enough, I look forward to retiring in this church and being the biggest fanboy for my pastors I can be. Because I know the difference it makes. And then number four, we respond with faith-fueled prayer. C.H. Spurgeon, one of my spiritual heroes by a long way, he once said, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. Understanding all that pastors are called to then in leading and nourishing and equipping and protecting as men who will give an account to the Lord, I can understand then why he says that no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. I want to encourage you, please pray for your pastors. C.H. Spurgeon had one of the most effective ministries the world has ever seen. And if you ever read his um, stories and biographies about him, it's amazing because one of the things he does when he shows people around his building uh, is he takes them to the, obviously the sanctuary, the preaching place where they're preaching, and then he takes them underground where there was a, a different room that ran across the whole length of the building. And whenever he showed people around the building, they opened the door and he said, this is my favorite room in the building. And he would open the door and there would always be people in there. And it was the prayer room. He said, this is the secret to our ministry. This is the reason why we're here. This is the reason why God is blessing it. Because there were always people praying. Praying for their city, praying for their pastors, praying for their church, praying for the world. 
Look at what God did through the power of prayer. So number four, we respond with faith-fueled prayer. Well, number three, I think we should ordain Mr. Chavez, do we not? Yes. All right, let's welcome him as he comes up. Thanks, mate. Thank you, mate. Enjoy it. Great to have the kids in. Some of my favorite people in the church. It's good. All right, well, the way this works is it's the same for Sovereign Grace around the whole world. We have an ordination um, script, actually, that we run. And so what we do is I ask questions of Patrick. There's 10 questions that he's really affirming and promising towards you of how he's going to pass to you. Then I'm going to ask questions for us as a church. Then I'm going to invite our fellow elder, my fellow elder, Brendan, up, and we're going to lay hands on Patrick and pray for him. And then I'm going to ask the core team to pray for him as well. This is a precious time, isn't it? Understanding more clearly, I think, what pastoral ministry is what I want you to understand is what is standing on the stage before us is a gift from God to us. Some gifts are things that people do. Other gifts, as biblically defined, are people. And you are a gift to us. All right. If you want to stand in the middle and face them, you're not making a promise to me. <laughs> I'm nervous for you. <laughs> Patrick, do you promise to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock? I do. Do you promise to faithfully guard the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer? And do you promise to protect the flock from false teaching, division, and dissension? Do you promise to care for the flock of God, not as a hireling, but as an, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, caring for his sheep as the precious ones for whom he died? I do. Do you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and this congregation, promise to preach the word in season and out of season? And do you promise to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, enduring suffering, while remaining sober-minded in all of your preaching and teaching? And will you do the work of an evangelist among those whom God has given you charge? With God's help, I do. Do you declare sincerely before God that you believe all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith fully and fully agree with the Scriptures? Do you own that statement as the statement and confession of your faith? And do you promise to teach and defend these doctrines in public and private? Do you promise further that in the future, that if in the future you come to have reservations about any of these doctrines, you will share these reservations with your eldership and the regional assembly of elders? I promise. Do you promise to keep a close watch on yourself and to walk humbly before others, to be self-suspicious of your own motives, to invite criticism from others, 
and to make yourself accountable to those whom God has put in your life? Absolutely, I promise. Do you submit without exception to the explicitly mandated practices of the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, affirming that the form of government is a wise and suitable application of scriptural principles? Yes, I do. Do you promise to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to show yourself in all respects, in action and in speech, to be a model of good works, integrity, and dignity, so that neither the church nor our Saviour Jesus Christ nor the gospel may be brought into reproach. I do. Do you promise to continually seek the gifts of the Spirit that you might serve God's people, not in the energy of the flesh but in the power of the Holy Spirit and to carry out your ministry without fear of man? I do. Now I'm going to ask you questions. So let's stand together. And we simply need to respond together, we do. Do you, the people of Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney, receive Patrick Chavez as your pastor? Oh. Says uh, Patrick Aminos. Okay, let's, let, let's, just, let's just check from past tense. Do you, the people of Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney, still receive Brendan Willis as your pastor? <laughs> Because now's the time to fire him, guys, while we're in the deal. <laughs> do, you believe, do you, the people of Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, receive Patrick Chavez as your pastor? We do. do you promise to receive the word of truth from him with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due biblical exercise of his leadership? Do you promise to supply him with whatever material support he may need to fulfill his ministry among you wherever possible? Do you promise to encourage him in his labors and to insist to assist his ministry and leadership for your spiritual edification, the evangelization of the lost, and the promotion of God's glory? Yeah. If I could invite Brendan up and also the pastoral team. Step forward. Lord, what a precious moment this is today. Lord, I do thank you for your care for us as a local church. I do thank you for the way you have brought us safe thus far and you continue to because you are ultimately the one building your church. How kind you are. Lord, I thank you for the provision that, that Patrick is for us. You always provide what we need. You always have in our eight and a half year history. As people have come and have gone, you've always supplied what we've needed. And you knew we needed Patrick, Lord, did you bless him today? Lord, I do pray that he would know your smile on him today. Yes. How kind. You've raised him for such a time as this, for such a purpose as this. Lord, we all have a part to play, and this is his part. Lord, as he's then walked with you obediently over many years now, yes. Lord, I thank you for his efforts. I thank you for his energies. I thank you for his heart. Lord, you know you know that this is the church I love the most. So thank you for providing pastors in this church that should something happen to me, I can still tell my kids, follow those guys. But thank you for your provision. Lord, did you bless him? Lord, would we, through the laying on of hands in this moment, we ordain him to your care and your ministry. And would it all be for your glory, Lord, would he help us make you 
famous. Yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.